Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about Hunter S. Thompson, the man who invented gonzo journalism. Of course, he lived in that famous fortified compound in Colorado with his guns and his drugs, and he wrote the classic book before that, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. For that story, we turn to Peter Richardson. He's written wonderful books about Kerry McWilliams and about Ramparts Magazine. We talked about them here. His new book is called Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson and the Weird Road to Gonzo. Peter, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, we have to start with Hunter S. Thompson at The Nation, way back in 1965 when he wrote his breakthrough piece that led to his first best-selling book. Right. Thompson was in San Francisco. He had been attracted to San Francisco because of mostly because of beat literature. He wanted to investigate what was happening in San Francisco. He was working as a freelancer and he was not thriving. And he he basically wrote a letter to Kerry McWilliams at The Nation begging him for an assignment. And McWilliams suggested that he write an article about the Hells Angels and the motorcycle gangs in general. Thompson thought it was a splendid idea. He rode around with the Hells Angels for a couple of weeks and submitted the article, which ran in, in 1965. And on the strength of that article, he was able to, to get some book contracts. And uh, Hells Angels became his first best-selling book. It came out in early 1967. And who was Hunter S. Thompson before that? How did he get started as a writer? Well, he grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, he served in the Air Force and was a sports writer there. Bounced around a little bit. He was in Puerto Rico. He did some uh, foreign correspondence for the National Observer in Latin America. Then he returned to San Francisco and was writing for the National Observer there. And um, he split with them. He wanted to do things a little bit more like Tom Wolfe. He wanted to review Tom Wolfe's one of Tom Wolfe's books. They weren't interested. He wanted to report on the free speech movement at UC Berkeley. They weren't interested in that. So he decided to try some new outlets. And that's how he ended up working with, with Kerry McWilliams at The Nation. 
My favorite writing of Hunter S. Thompson's is his reporting on Nixon in the 1972 campaign, which which was glorious. He called Nixon a born loser, capital B, capital L, quote, the predatory shyster who turns into something unspeakable, full of claws and bleeding string warts on nights when the moon comes too close. That's from Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. How did Democratic strategist Frank Mankiewicz describe Hunter S. Thompson's coverage of the 72 campaign? Yeah, he described it as the least factual and most accurate description of that campaign, which was very shrewd insight. He really understood what Thompson was going for there and what he achieved. And uh, who gave him that assignment? How did it work out? It seemed like a problematic one. Hunter S. Thompson, at that point, lacked the experience, lacked the access, lacked the resources, and didn't have any status as a political reporter where the other people covering the campaign had been doing this for years and decades. Yeah, he was by no means a typical member of the campaign press corps. By that time, though, he had he had um, written Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which appeared originally in, in uh, Rolling Stone magazine. Rolling Stone was based in San Francisco. It was a rock magazine, but it was always more than a rock magazine. And the co-founder and editor, Jan Wenner, thought this would be a great assignment for Hunter Thompson, fresh off of that success, um, for a couple of reasons. And, and one of the main reasons was that the 1972 campaign was the first one in which 18-year-olds could vote. So that was a natural demographic for Rolling Stone magazine. And Jan and Hunter thought, maybe we can move the needle a little bit if we um, feature campaign coverage from Thompson in this kind of freewheeling style in the pages of Rolling Stone magazine. The book that resulted, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972, has become a classic of political journalism. In The Nation, you identified his five most relevant lessons for journalists today. For starters, most political writers rely on inside sources to find out what's really going on. That's why we read the White House Court reporters for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and so on. And those people spend years cultivating their sources. That seemed like Hunter S. Thompson's biggest weakness was a weakness. He didn't really have anybody on the inside that he could go to. He also didn't have any colleagues to use as a sounding board or support his work back in the office. He had Tim Krause, who did a fantastic job and wrote his own book about, about the campaign press corps, uh, The Boys on the Bus. That, that was also ran in Rolling Stone and was a big success. What he did have was a unique opportunity, though. And by that, I mean... He didn't need to cultivate sources he, because he wasn't coming back. So his idea was, I'm going to offer the readers of Rolling Stone the unvarnished truth, as I understand it, not only of the candidates in their campaigns, but also about the other media outlets that were covering the campaign, their blind spots, their prejudices, their limitations. And so in that sense, he was empowered to do something that no one else could do. And it came naturally to him anyway. That's what he wanted to do. And so he quickly turned what seemed like a weakness into a strength. But journalism has rules, and getting the facts right is number one. Accuracy is our highest obligation. And if you're a political reporter in 
the 60s or the 70s, you're supposed to avoid partisanship and advocacy. And, of course, that was not the way Hunter S. Thompson worked or wrote. What was it he said to an editor about facts? Yeah, he said at one point in a letter um, that facts are lies when they're added up. Facts are lies when they're added up. Wow. Yeah, it really means that, you you know, that's it's not obvious that just getting the facts right is going to get you to the truth. That there are some truths that are more accessible through fiction, for example. And, you know, he really wanted to be a novelist even before he became a journalist. And I think he really understood the power of fiction in that way. And he blended fiction and hallucination and invective and satire um, into this kind of um, powerful combination, along with the hyperbolic political commentary. And, and that, I think, is what made his, what he called his jangled campaign diary, um, probably the most durable and certainly the most memorable account of that campaign. The reigning king of campaign journalism in 1972 was Theodore S. White. He had written the classic book, Making of the President 1960, about Kennedy beating Nixon. Was a huge bestseller, won the Pulitzer Prize, and then became a franchise. He wrote a Making of the President book then every four years. Um, People love these books because they read like novels. White told a dramatic story about a hero overcoming huge challenges. What was Hunter S. Thompson's approach? You would think he might have pursued something like that because it was so successful and he did want to write novels, but he decided not to go that route, um, in part because it disguised some of the things that he wanted to say about the political class and about the campaign. Um, he had no... Um, he had no desire to make these politicians look be- any better than they actually were. And that was a kind of built-in tendency, I think, of Theodore White's approach. It made, it made the victorious politicians look heroic. And that was never any part of Hunter Thompson's plan. He did admire some of the politicians, especially George McGovern. But he really didn't like Edmund Muskie. He didn't like Hubert Humphrey. And he absolutely detested Richard Nixon. And, you know, when uh, Nixon lost in 1960, White made him look not so good. White actually went back and apologized to Nixon before 1968 for that coverage. Well, as it turned out, um, Thompson's much more critical assessment of Richard Nixon you know, looked prophetic after Nixon's presidency went down in flames shortly after the election. Of course, the clearest element of Hunter S. Thompson's style was hyperbole. Nixon is the predatory shyster. That's hard to sustain, especially in a book-length work, especially in a career. Uh, Let's talk about hyperbole. Right. Hyperbole you do want to avoid if you're a traditional uh, if you're a traditional reporter. It's really the last thing. You, you don't want to be hyperbolic. You don't want to go overboard. You're trying to get the facts straight and the proportions right. Thompson went the other way with it. And, and you have to be careful with hyperbole. I mean, with Nixon, comparing Nixon to a werewolf, for example. Yes. I mean, what do you do with when Reagan comes along? You've sort of cut down on your possibilities there. But in the right hands, hyperbole can be really good at 
lifting a topic, raising a topic excessively to reveal an undervalued truth. And that's what Thompson was going for. He was not trying to mislead his readership. He was trying to get at a truth, but he realized that to hit that mark, he had to overshoot it. And the other key element here is that Thompson always put his own emotions front and center in his writings, which, of course, is a taboo for uh, political journalists. Uh, How did he do it? Well, for one thing, he never hid his own preference for George McGovern from the beginning, even when McGovern was not leading the, the, uh, in the primaries. He was behind Edmund Muskie and Hubert Humphrey. So Thompson was, from the beginning, uh, obviously for George McGovern, whom he really admired. It didn't prevent him from criticizing McGovern. But the point was that he was straight with his readers about where he was coming from. And that allowed his readers to, to make a critical assessment of what, of what they were reading. You didn't have to be a McGovern supporter to understand what Thompson was trying to tell you about that campaign. And, and the other thing was that, that he, you think of Thompson as being this kind of confident, swaggering uh, person but really what he was doing was kind of exposing his feelings here in a way. There, there was a kind of humanity that came out through that coverage. And that took a certain kind of courage. And, and some later readers, including Matt Taibbi, said that was really the key to the success of that coverage, is that he was kind of exposing himself emotionally in a certain way, in a way that most readers didn't expect. And I think that made it more moving um, than it would have been if he had covered it in the, the campaign in the traditional way. Your piece in The Nation, Five Lessons from Hunter S. Thompson, seems like a kind of a guide. It makes me think, well, uh, maybe uh, I should try to write like Hunter Thompson. I imagine the same thing has occurred to you, but I notice your book is not a work of gonzo journalism. No, and I really wouldn't recommend that kind of slavish imitation to anyone. Very few people have been able to pull it off. I mentioned Matt Taibbi. He did about as well as you can do, not by imitating Thompson, but he was clearly influenced by Thompson. The thing about Hunter Thompson is he had a long apprenticeship, uh, both as a, as a uh, fiction writer and as a journalist. He knew exactly what rules he was breaking and why. And I think if you if you look at Thompson and you think, I'm going to do what he did, I'm going to get high, I'm going to stomp on my own accelerator, and then I'm just going to write whatever comes into my head, that is probably the best way to misunderstand him and his achievement. Peter Richardson's new book is Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson and the Weird Road to Gonzo. You can read his piece, Five Lessons from Hunter S. Thompson, Wisdom from the Godfather of Gonzo, at thenation.com. Thank you, Peter. This was great. Thanks for having me, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.